0: It is easier to find men who will volunteer to die than to find those who are willing to endure pain with patience. Julius Caesar. Welcome to the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness, back from my Andalusian history tour for episode 28 of the March of History. And just a quick heads up, I'm going to keep any announcements about all the history seen on that tour, and any episodes that will discuss it to the end of this episode. In other words, I'm going to tell you about the trip at the end of the episode, but right now we're going to get right into the flow of episode 28 and get started. Now, to remind you, we left off last week or last episode on the March of History with the Romans under command of Gaius Julius Caesar fighting the Gallic tribe known as the Helvetii in the first major pitched battle of the Gallic Wars. During this battle, Caesar dismissed his horse along with the horses of all of his fellow commanders and officers to show the ordinary troops they had no intention of fleeing the battlefield if things went bad. The battle raged on for hours into the night before the Romans finally defeated the Helvetii and drove them off. And that is where we pick back up this week on the March of History. Now after their defeat, Caesar says there was about 130,000 Helvetii left in the commentaries. And just to let you know, I'm going to talk about the commentaries a lot throughout this episode and the coming episodes. When I say the commentaries, I'm referring to Julius Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic Wars, kind of his dispatches from the front lines to the Senate and possibly people of Rome telling them exactly what happened. It's considered a masterpiece of Latin literature that Caesar wrote while on campaign, so it's pretty remarkable. And it's one of the few times where we get to hear the story told by Caesar himself rather than other people writing about him. Now, these 130,000 surviving Helvetii that had fled after the battle, these survivors fled northeast as fast as they could all night without stopping, and they continued like this without rest, Caesar says, for about three days until they reached another tribe's territory, a tribe known as the Lingones. But during these three days, the Roman army did not pursue the Helvetii. And why? Why? Well, Caesar says this is because they had so many wounded and dead that they needed time to bury the dead and to care for the wounded. And this is another important moment in the early bond being formed between Caesar and his army, particularly the rank-and-file ordinary soldiers. And by doing this, by allowing his troops to have this time, Caesar is showing them compassion and demonstrating to them that he cares about them by letting them... Bury their dead, take care of the wounded, and particularly when it comes to burying the dead, I mean, there's a lot of religious and afterlife implications that go with burying the dead and doing the required religious rites. I mean, even today there are with funerals, but especially in the ancient world, this is something that meant a lot to the ordinary soldiers in the army, and Caesar allows them this time. He's also showing that he cares for the wounded by not force marching this damaged army on to chase the enemy. And early displays of compassion for the ordinary soldiers in his army like this will produce huge dividends for Caesar in the future of his army in terms of loyalty and devotion of his soldiers and their willingness to follow him anywhere and through any hardships. And making this decision to wait three days as the enemy flees while allowing his soldiers to take care of the wounded and bury the dead, et cetera, et cetera, may seem like common sense to us learning about this from the comfortable distance of 2,000 years. But let's never forget, there are a million different decisions Caesar could have made in this situation other than the decision that he actually did make. And many commanders would have pressed their soldiers onward with the idea that If they don't press on, the Helvetii will recover, and the Romans will have to fight another difficult battle. And some commanders throughout history may have pressed their soldiers on simply because they genuinely wanted to save them from having to fight a second battle. You see, following up a victory by pursuing the enemy made a massive difference in the ancient world. Given time, many times an enemy army could regroup, recover, and come back to fight again, and potentially win that second battle. And only by pursuing them immediately after the victory did you prevent this. And here Caesar is going against this obvious strategy. Now, throughout history, you'll see many, many commanders do this, you know, sit around after a victory, but usually it's because of laziness or for lack of discipline. This is not Caesar's rationale. He does this because he is more focused on building a long-term relationship with his army than winning the war against Helvetii. Yes, winning against Helveti is important. And yes, if he loses, the game's all over. Remember, he's constantly gambling. And the second he loses some dubious war that he's fighting that has dubious legality, he's in trouble and he's probably going to get taken down as governor of the province. So winning against Helveti matters to him, but he doesn't lose sight of the long term goals that he has in mind. And, and one of the big ones is build this great relationship with his troops so that come you know, long-term, when he asks them to do things that are superhuman, they will, without hesitation, say yes. And this focus on building a long-term relationship, even at the expense of winning the current war or current battle, would be a foreign concept to, in my opinion, many commanders throughout history. And to make this more relatable for us today, just think about how many managers or CEOs or just business leaders in general you've worked for in your life that did not put the long-term interest of the employees ahead of their own short-term goals. Probably not too many, right? Most managers and leaders in business today are constantly hounding the employees about short-term goals and there's not a lot about long-term strategy, especially not long-term strategy that's going to benefit the rank-and-file employees. Now, I've worked for three Fortune 500 companies and I've had great managers and I've had bad managers, like anybody. But far more often than not, you'll find that managers put their own short-term goals ahead of any long-term strategies especially the type that benefit the rank and file employee. And oftentimes this isn't it's not even 100% their fault since the pressure comes from the very top. And even the CEOs are getting pressured by the board or they're getting pressured by shareholders. Well, 2000 years ago back in the ancient Roman army, things weren't that different. Most commanders of an ancient Roman army were thinking about short-term objectives and scrambling from one fire to another trying to put them out without much thought of long-term strategy and where any of this is leading. This is what makes Caesar's approach to this situation unusual, even if it seems obvious to us today. And in my opinion, many more commanders throughout history would have mercilessly pressed their troops on simply because they lacked empathy for the common soldier and thought only about their own prestige and the immediate goal of defeating the Helvetii. The point I'm making with all this is that Caesar letting his troops rest like this is quite unusual for him, given his love of rapid movement and constantly being on the go and many commanders other than him would have been more focused on the Helvetii than taking care of their own troops. And the ordinary soldiers recognize this, and the bond between Caesar and the legionaries continues to grow. Now, going back to our narrative, Caesar does send out messengers in the meantime, warning the Lingones, which is the tribe that the Helvetii have now fled to, not to provide food or other necessities to the Helvetii, and that if they did do this, he threatened them that they would be treated as enemies of Rome, just like the Helvetii. In other words, he would attack them as well. And after three days of rest, Caesar gathers his army and they begin to march after the Helvetii. Now, the Helvetii at this point, so it seems that the Lingones followed Caesar's warning and did not provide them with anything. And at this point, they are pretty much out of provisions, out of food, out of anything, and they decide to throw in the towel. And they send emissaries to meet up with Caesar and the Roman army on the march. And these emissaries, when they arrive in front of Caesar, apparently throw themselves at his feet and weep and beg for peace. And it's funny, you see a lot of this in in the ancient world of emissaries and different peoples just throwing themselves at some great person's feet and begging and crying. And you never know whether this is actually what happened or this is a rewriting of the story. You know, if you're the defeated army, you really don't get a voice in the story. So I don't know if people were just more dramatic in the ancient world uh, or maybe then again, maybe losing three quarters of your population will make you more dramatic like that. I don't know. But anyway, I'm just wondering if if it actually happened that way, if they actually threw themselves at his feet and begged and cried, or if they were more somber and less emotional and Caesar decided to play it up for dramatic effect. Who knows? But in response to this display and this, this begging, Caesar orders the Helvetii to wait exactly where they are so that he can catch up with them. And they do this, which is... So sometimes you would have ancient armies that would go and beg for some kind of peace like this, and the Romans or some other, whoever's fighting them would say, all right, stay where you are. And they would say, oh, no, we're not going to stay where we are, which often meant that they were just buying for time, you know, trying to get the Roman army to halt as they regrouped and gathered and got ready to fight. So Caesar tells them to stay where they are, and they actually do. They stay where they are. So it's a good sign of Caesar that they actually are defeated and actually are looking to surrender. And upon arrival in the Helveti camp, Caesar demands hostages again, and this time he demands all of their weapons to be handed over as well. Finally he demands that they hand over the slaves who had escaped Caesar's army. And if you don't remember what slaves he's talking about, when Caesar realized that his army would not have enough food and they made the bee line for the Gallic town of Bibracte, where the battle happened, some of Caesar, or it was specifically, Caesar calls a guy up by name. It's it's one man, an officer in his army, had some slaves escape that ran to the Helvetii and told them what was happening and told them that the Romans were heading for this town and, and turning away and, and not chasing the Helvetii anymore. And this is what emboldened the Helvetii to change their direction and follow the Romans and attack the Romans. So Caesar requests to have these slaves given back to the Romans now, what was done with these poor slaves is is never stated, but I have to imagine that they were either killed or tortured and then killed, but that's purely my speculation. I don't think that they got off with a slap on the wrist for this kind of thing. But all of this gathering of hostages and weapons among 130,000 people who are probably extremely disorganized at this point takes time, and night time comes basically before this is all complete. But at dusk, as the sun's setting, 6,000 men of the Helveti, of, of one particular village, decide to make a run for it. Because, I mean, Caesar speculates in the commentaries. He says either they were afraid because they had to give over their weapons and figured they were all going to be butchered, or they thought that they could find sanctuary beyond the Rhine. But that's basically where they make a run for, is they try to make it over the Rhine to where the Germans are to find sanctuary among them. But Caesar discovers this flight before they get too far away, and he orders the tribes whose land they are moving through on their way to the Rhine to hunt them down if they wish to clear themselves of suspicion. So (laughs) imagine you're these tribes, and you see these people running through your territory, and you don't know what's happening. And suddenly the Romans send a messenger that says, Unless you hunt these guys down and bring them back, even though you have nothing to do with this or may have nothing to do with this, we are going to assume that you helped them and that you are aiding them in their escape. So now you're on the hook for capturing all these runaway people and and bringing them back to Caesar. So talk about a, a sudden panic for them. And this tribe or tribes do as they're told and they capture the runaways and they bring them back to Caesar. And I'll let Caesar tell you what happens next in his own words or at least an English translation of his own words. Quote, when they were returned, he treated them as enemies. As for all the rest, he accepted their surrender after the hostages, weapons, and deserters had been handed over. He ordered their Helveti, Tulingi, and Lataviki to return to the lands from which they had come. And because their crops were all ruined and they had no means of s- sustenance in their homeland, he commanded the Allobroges to provide them with corn, and told the Helvetii to rebuild the towns and villages which they had burned, end quote. and that's direct from the commentaries. And there's a few cryptic things in there. You know, he he says he treated them as enemies, and who who the them is there is it's the group of Helvetii that had run away, the six thousand. So, what does treating them as enemies mean? The book in the, the translation, the commentaries I'm reading, which is uh, Oxford World's Classics, a new translation by Carolyn Hammond, basically says it's a euphemism for having them all put to death. Treat them as enemies. I had them all killed. It's kind of a nicer way of saying that. Another book I've read, Adrian Goldsworthy's uh, Caesar Life of a Colossus, says that that means that he had them all sold into slavery. Take your pick on what the worst option is. Neither one of those is good, but in Caesar's words, he treated them as enemies. But the rest of the Helvetii, he did not treat as enemies, and this is a classic example or another example of Caesar's famous or you might call it infamous mercy. Now, just three days ago, this tribe, the Helvetii, and and their accompanying tribes, who he mentioned by name there had chased the roman army admittedly after the roman army had been chasing them and had attacked them first but they had chased the roman army and when caesar retreated to the hill and lined his army up there the halvetti lined up at the base of the hill and attacked his army and had tried to annihilate the roman army and would have done so if they had the might to do so and after their defeat and subsequent surrender they would have had little reason to expect mercy from the romans Yet here Caesar is, and, and you saw from the quote I just read in the commentaries, he orders an ally tribe, the Allobroges, to feed them since they have no more food. This is, I mean, if you compare this treatment of a defeated enemy in the ancient world to, say, the Mongols, who would have had every man taller than the wheel of a wagon killed, or at times have every man, woman, child, and creature in a city killed. This is remarkable mercy and clemency. I mean, the ancient world was brutal in a way that is hard for people today to wrap their heads around. And displays of any kind of mercy were few and far between, which is what makes Caesar's near constant clemency so unusual. Now, Caesar goes on himself in the commentaries to justify this show of mercy by stating that he wanted the Helvetii to go back home and rebuild their towns because he wanted them to act as a bulwark against German incursions. In other words, the Helvetii's land was seen as more fertile than the land across the Rhine, and if it was just sitting there empty and unoccupied and undefended, sooner or later, a band of Germans, as had happened in Caesar's uncle, Marius's day, would cross the Rhine and start trying to take this land, and this would unsettle the delicate balance of power in the region and cause instability. And Caesar says he hoped to prevent this instability by sending them back to their homes and having them occupy that land. Now, Julius Caesar was an extremely controversial figure. In his day, and to a lesser degree, continues to be controversial at a distance of over 2,000 years. And opinions on Caesar and his motives have seesawed back and forth throughout history. And you'll find many monarchical dynasties throughout history have looked to him and his imperial successors, meaning the people that took his name called themselves Caesars, meaning the Roman Caesars, uh, and they've looked back to them for tips on how to rule and how to become great men of history. And if you don't believe me, just look at their names. The Russian Tsars. Tsar means Caesar in Russian. The German Kaisers. Kaiser means Caesar in German. And then you have the Holy Roman Emperors who were imitating the ancient Roman Empire and imitating the ancient Caesars of old for what? I mean, maybe a thousand years or however long the Holy Roman Empire was around. And then, of course, you have the long list of emperors, starting with Augustus, who took the name of Caesar as almost a title. Uh, I mean, not almost a title; it was a, it, became, it becomes a title. It starts out as a name and becomes a title, you know, along through the ages. And there are many more instances of this sort of mimicking and copying of Julius Caesar and the Romans. But we won't get into all of them now. But what I'm saying is that these sorts of people that look back at Caesar and try to imitate him and to use his name would have seen Julius Caesar as the greatest of men and indeed hoped that his greatness would rub off on them by taking his name and imitating the Romans. That's why they called themselves Kaiser and Tsar and these kind of names. But it wasn't just monarchical despots from the 1800s who saw Caesar as a great man in whose life lessons could be gleaned even if they didn't believe in imitating his exact deeds marching on Rome. (laughs) None other than American founding father Alexander Hamilton said, quote, the greatest man that ever lived was Julius Caesar, end quote. And that is quoted, so it's actually Thomas Jefferson that says that he heard Alexander Hamilton say this, and he says this in a letter to Dr. Benjamin Rush in 1811, as I understand. So the point is that it's, it's not just czars and Kaisers saying this, it's it's even American founding fathers who are looking back and seeing Caesar as a great individual. Now, granted, Alexander Hamilton may have not been the most democratic of those founding fathers, but still he was no despot himself. But as I said, things seesaw all, and more recently you'll find many historians and fans of history who hardly have a good word to say about Julius Caesar. In fact, they'll go so far as to call his nine-year war in Gaul a genocide of the Gallic people. And maybe they're right. I don't know. I, I definitely don't know the technical definition of genocide and whether that qualifies or not, but you'll hear a lot of people make this case, and they probably have a good case to make. And to this group, his actions are seen in the most cynical light, and nothing he did was for anyone's benefit but his own, his entire life. Now, personally, I think it's difficult to know the motivations for his actions from such a distance of history, you know, over 2000 years. But in my humble, non-professional historian or non-historian at all, because I'm just a fan of history opinion, it's probably a mixture of both. In other words, just because an action would help him personally doesn't mean he wasn't also motivated by how it would help the less fortunate of Rome. And just because a law passed would help the less fortunate of Rome doesn't mean Caesar wasn't considering how it would help him gain political power. He was a complex man with complex motives. And I see no contradiction in saying he did many things in his life, both to help those around him and to help himself. I don't think his motivations have to be solely one or the other. And the fact that so many people want to say only selfishness or only pure altruism can motivate him is just baffling to me, because I don't think anybody works that way. But to bring this all back to our current narrative and the story that we're talking about right now in Caesar's life, let me give you an example. Caesar sends the Helvetii back to their homes and has the Allobroges, another allied tribe of Rome, feed them. One side of this argument, who I mentioned, would say that this was a massive act of mercy and clemency, atypical in the ancient world. Now, the other side that never has a good word to say about Caesar would see this in a more cynical light. They'd say that by Caesar's own admission, he is only feeding and sending these people back because it will bolster the security and stability of his province They'd say he cares nothing for the Helvetii as people, only for his own prestige and power, and that having a stable province will benefit him personally in both prestige and power. But let me just hop into this debate with a third perspective just to muddy up the waters even more. Imagine for a second that Caesar is actually a man in the ancient world that, despite his massive ambitions and ego, does want to show mercy to people where he can. Well, remember, this is the ancient world where humans are far more brutal and ruthless than they are today. And Caesar is surrounded by hardened, lifelong soldiers. These are the most brutal people you will find in in this ancient, brutal world. I mean, some of these guys will probably kill babies if you order them to without a second hesitation. If Caesar wants to show mercy, he can't just say, oh, these poor people, they have no food, let's go help them, let's feed them for humanistic reasons. His audience is not going to buy this and it's not going to go down very well, is it? So he has to cloak ideas of mercy in those of strategy. In other words, he has to justify his merciful treatment of a defeated enemy of Rome by telling his brutal audience, and the Roman audience was brutal, that he is showing mercy because it is in the benefit of Rome. This way, he can show mercy without appearing to be weak. This is just a a third perspective on the issue I thought of as I was going through all this, But as I said earlier, most likely his motivations were a mixture of wanting to show mercy for the sake of not killing these people, wanting to show mercy to boost his own personal image, and wanting to show mercy to help Rome and his own provinces. Now, how much each one of those reasons weighed into his decision-making – it's impossible for us to know, but I do think it's probably a mixture of things and not purely narcissism and not purely altruistic reasons. Like most humans, he weighed many different reasons for a decision and then made the decision. But back to our narrative, because we've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole here. It was at this point, after the defeat of the Helveti and after they surrendered, that Caesar says in the commentaries that he found a tablet in the Helvetii camp, written in Greek characters, meaning that the Romans could actually read it. And in the commentaries, Caesar says that this tablet was a sort of census of the Helveti people before they left for their venture to find a new homeland. And this tablet stated that 368,000 people had left their homes during the Helveti migration. That's men, women, children, old people, people of all different varieties, right? Not just fighting men. This is not an army of 368,000 people. This is 368,000 people total. And the census says that about 92,000 of these people were capable of bearing arms, meaning could be soldiers. And Caesar says in the commentaries that when he took a census of the people he was sending back to their homeland, he found them to only be 110,000. Now. One of the tribes that had joined Helvetii, known as the Boii, and if you remember back to the last episode, they were one of the ones that had retreated to the wagons and had fought the Romans into the night. They were allowed to stay on lands of a tribe called the Idawe, allied to Rome. So if we discount their numbers, because Caesar gives us their number as well, or if we, I'm sorry, if we add their numbers to the people being sent home, basically the assumption that we're left with, to make a long story short, because I don't want to bore you with a ton of math, is that 220,000 people that had gone on this migration were killed. That is a massive number today, never mind in the ancient world, where there were just not as many people as there are today. And it should be noted. Now, many people will say, and even professional, very qualified historians will say, that these numbers are exaggerated, And that there's no way a host of that many people could have been crossing Europe at that given time in history. How they know this, I don't know. But as I always say, if we throw out the numbers that Caesar gives us, we have nothing to work with, right? He says there was, what, 368,000? If we say, oh, that's that's not a believable number, then what number do we go off of? (laughs) We have nothing. So... Basically, we have to go off of his number, but just take it with a grain of salt, right? And regardless of the number of the Helvetii that there actually were, let's not forget, these people were spread out over many, many miles. They weren't traveling in one big group. And it's quite possible that many of the people in this migration escaped Caesar altogether and were not killed But on this subject, history is silent. In other words, Caesar never says, hey, 100,000 escaped and we never saw them. You know, he just kind of gives the math of, hey, here's how many left. We fought a bunch of battles with them and here's how many were sent back. So, I mean, it kind of leaves you to make your own decision. Did Caesar kill 220,000 of these poor people? (laughs) Or were they more of a violent migrating tribe that forced him to fight them? Or did are these numbers vastly exaggerated and the deaths were far fewer? Or did many of these people escape and didn't get caught by the Roman army? Or is it a combination of all these things? This is where ancient history can be maddening. And I do my best to give you the perspective that is honest and clear and and not say one thing's definite or another thing's definite when we simply don't know. So I'm kind of just giving you all the angles and and you can make your own decision as to exactly what happened there. But in the aftermath of this war with the Helvetii, the power really begins to shift in Gaul. You see, leaders from all over Gaul now come to congratulate Caesar on this victory and to acknowledge the new balance of power. Not only that, but Caesar claims they thanked him for putting down the Helvetii, which they said were looking for some of the best land in Gaul, and when they found it, would take it, presumably by force, and force the the new tribes around them to become tributaries, which of course they did not want. Then these emissaries go ahead and they ask permission from Caesar to have a meeting of all the tribes around Gaul to come to some kind of consensus on something, after which they would want to meet with Caesar personally and request something secret from him. But at this point, they won't tell Caesar what that something is. So, I mean, you can really see the shift of power happening already. They're asking his permission to have a meeting among themselves when Rome doesn't even rule over Gaul. This is kind of remarkable. And they have special requests they want to make of him. And so, you know, we do eventually find out what this request is, but we are not going to talk about it in this episode. And to find out what that secret request that they have to make of Caesar is, you'll have to tune in to the next episode of the March of History. But before we end today, let me just say... As you may have seen, if you follow the March History Instagram account, I have been on a grand Andalusian tour of all the different history around Andalusia. I went to Cadiz, the oldest continuously inhabited city in Western Europe, a city where Caesar was governor of, known as Gades, or back in the Roman times known as Gades, originally established by Phoenicians said to possibly even be, I think, if I'm, if I'm remembering this correctly off the top of my head, the, the burial place of Hercules. So tons of history there. Went to Malaga, which has this incredible thousand-year-old Moorish castle, uh, or actually two castles overlooking the city, and tons of different history and, and, and cathedrals and, and just incredible architecture. And then finally to Granada, where we saw the Alhambra, the most spectacular of Islamic Spanish palaces, still almost pristine in comparison to most others, and just epic views of, of the city of Granada and of all this ancient architecture. But much of this historical tour that I did was Roman history, but a lot of it wasn't. A lot of it was Islamic history. A lot of it was Phoenician history. Some of it was Christian history. Some of it was about maybe even Columbus and and that later era. But the point is, I'm not going to get into it too much today, but I would like to do kind of an episode on that at some point in the future where maybe Brendan and I, because we do hope to get him back on the podcast soon, we'll talk about it and give you advice if you ever do want to head to to Spain to see some of the history there, some advice on what areas to see and what's worth seeing, and and especially talk about the history that's related to Caesar in the area because, remember, Caesar was governor of this area and fought battles in this area. So maybe next episode we'll do that or at some point in the near future. But like I said, if you want to see pictures of some of that history and of, all of those castles and and of the amazing artifacts that I saw there, Go ahead and give us a follow on the March of History Instagram page. That's at the March of History. I try to do a daily dose of history each day, just something to keep you learning about new kinds of history. Uh, Also, our Twitter is at March underscore history. The Facebook Facebook page is the March of History. If you just search that, you can shoot us an email at themarchofhistory at gmail.com. And if you listen on the Apple Podcast Store or any kind of podcast store that allows you to leave ratings, please, we would love it if you would leave us a five-star rating and a little review of the podcast and what you liked. It goes a long way to growing the podcast. And also make sure to share the podcast with any and everyone you know. We want to spread this thing far and wide and get as many listeners as we can. And if you have feedback for the podcast, uh, go ahead and send it to the email. I said, the March of history at gmail.com. And that is it for this week. We will see you next time on the March of History.